Hey, great to see all of you here this morning. Uh, my name's Scott, and uh, my wife Melanie and I are part of the fellowship here at South Fellowship, so I uh, appreciate the opportunity that I have to be part of the team that's uh, working through the parables this summer. Uh, Yvonne's going to wrap that series up next Sunday, but uh, this Sunday we're going to uh, look at uh, one of the parables in Luke chapter 12. Before we do that, though, I think we should give our great worship team here at South a big hand for leading us. <clears throat> They always do such a great job. Um, the passage this morning that we're going to look at starts in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. And if you brought a Bible and you'd like to open there, that'd be great. If you want to just follow along on the screen, I'm going to uh, read this for us to kind of set the stage for the story that we're going to look at. Uh, this is God's word to you and to me, so let us pay close attention. Luke says this. <clears throat> Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Uh, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Uh, but I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body's been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Uh, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, uh, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, don't worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you're going to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Well, before we... Uh, begin to look at this text, I'm going to ask you if you'll join with me in prayer. Our Father, we've gathered together today to worship you in the name of Jesus, and I thank you for every person that's here today. I thank you so much for South Fellowship. Uh, Lord, wherever we're at today, emotionally or spiritually or physically, Lord, I just pray that you would come and meet with us in a very, very, very personal way, that you would show us experientially your overwhelming, never-ending, restless love which you have for each of us. Lord, we thank you for your word, and now as we uh, look at this text out of Luke's gospel, Lord, I pray that your spirit would enlighten our minds, you might touch our hearts, you might encourage us so that each and every one of us can go a little bit deeper today in our walk with Jesus. It's in his great and glorious name that we pray. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, a long time ago, 
before there were Democrats and Republicans, uh, before there was a constitution or a Bill of Rights, or even before there was a Declaration of Independence, there was Rome. Uh, Rome was originally a republic, but uh, eventually it began to unravel due to a series of civil wars over economic and political and social problems. Uh, near the end of the Roman Republic, a young man by the name of Octavian rose to prominence. Uh, the great Roman orator and statesman Cicero said, Octavian is a prominent young man who should be praised, honored, and eliminated. But in the years after Cicero said that, Octavian eliminated all of his enemies, including Cicero, transformed Rome into an empire, and he took on the title Caesar Augustus. Uh, the empire that Augustus ruled was absolutely huge. It went all the way from England in the north to Egypt in the south. It went all the way from the border of Persia in the east to Spain in the west. Uh, Augustus had a standing army of a half million men. And he had millions and millions of people in the empire who relied on government assistance. So in the 25th year of his reign, like any good politician, he realized, I've got to pay the bills for all of this, and therefore I've got to increase taxation. But before he could increase taxes, he had to find out who everyone was and where they lived within the empire. And so he decreed that a census of the whole Roman Empire be taken. Uh, when Augustus issued the decree for that census, there was this unknown little Jewish couple, and they lived up here in the northern environment of Israel, which was called Galilee. And because they had to journey to the husband's home, which was down in Judea called Bethlehem, uh, the wife had to ride a donkey down there, and she was pregnant. Well, that husband's name was Joseph, and his wife's name was Mary. And when they got down there to Bethlehem, she gave birth to their firstborn, and his name was... Jesus. You know, when Augustus issued that decree, everybody in the empire knew who he was, and nobody knew who Jesus was. But now, 2,000 years later, nobody knows who Augustus is outside of history departments and different universities in the United States. But millions and millions and millions of people bow to the name of Jesus and worship him every week. Now, that happened for a lot of different reasons. But one of the main reasons that happened is because the early church eventually infiltrated the Roman Empire. And then over time, it transformed it. It did so because those first Christians were filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus. They had his example of how to lead life to guide them. And then they put into practice the things he taught them uh, the things that we're going to look at here out of this text in Luke chapter 12. Luke tells us here that Jesus was preaching to a huge multitude. In fact, it says in verse 1 there that there were many, many thousands of people. 
Well, in this sermon or this message that he's giving here, he's talking to them about incredibly important issues. Uh, Issues like heaven and hell, judgment and forgiveness, faith and fear. But right in the middle of his message, some guy elbows his way to the front of that crowd, kind of like people in our culture do when they want to see a celebrity or when they have an agenda to promote. And he interrupts Jesus' sermon with a demand. Look what he says, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, teacher or rabbi, more appropriately in the Jewish context, uh, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And now we're not given any background or details about this man's request, but it seems pretty obvious here that he's involved in some kind of a legal dispute with his brother over the estate that their father had left them. And for this guy, the sun was never going to shine, the flowers were never ever going to bloom, the birds would never sing until he got all the stuff that he thought was rightfully his. Now, most of us here in church world and at South Fellowship, we don't like to think that Jesus ever got upset with anybody except the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the reason he would get upset with them is because they were kind of tangled and they were kind of out there. But as you look at Jesus' response to this guy's request in verse 13 in the original text, it becomes really, really clear that Jesus was pretty ticked off. Look how the Lord responds. Jesus replied, Man! Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Uh, In the original text, both the grammar and the way the sentence is phrased indicates that Jesus has a lot of emotional intensity in his response to this person. Let me do the best I can to put this in the vernacular for us. Basically, what Jesus is telling this guy is, goofball? Why are you in my face about something as silly as this? See, Jesus is upset because he knows this guy's in a really, really bad place. This guy's caught up in a really destructive sin that's crippling him morally. It's destroying him spiritually. See, this man is standing right next to the Son of God. But all he can think about is stuff. So Jesus turns to all of those who are close by, and I'm assuming that's the disciples and anybody close enough in the crowd to hear him. And what he does is he names this man's sin. Look at verse 15. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Uh, Jesus says, this guy's caught up in greed because all he can think about is getting more and more and more stuff. Now, greed's an interesting word and different people define it in different ways. Uh, One definition of greed is it's the desire to have more and more and more of what we already have enough of. Uh, One writer that I really like defines greed as the assumption 
that it's all there for my consumption. Uh, Maybe a more simple definition of greed is simply an intense desire to get more and more stuff. Now, most of us don't think of ourselves as greedy, do we? I mean, if, if you and I went and we had a cup of coffee at Starbucks and we were sharing about our lives, and I asked you if you thought you were greedy, you'd say, no, no, no. And if, if you asked me if I thought I was greedy, I'd say, of course not. I, I, I'm not greedy. But friends, listen, listen, listen. Given what Jesus says here, this is Jesus talking. Given what he says here, would it be wise... Would it be helpful if maybe we did a little bit of self-evaluation? A little bit of spiritual inventory. Is it possible that all of us here, you and me, are more influenced by the spirit of greed than maybe we realize? Let me give us something to meditate on for just a moment. Uh, This is a real picture of a storage unit. And as you can see, it's filled to the brim with stuff. Now, if by some chance you have a storage unit and you're renting a storage unit right now, I'm not picking on you. At least not too much, okay? What I'm trying to do is use this as a metaphor to get us to think about this whole issue of greed. But... Did you know that in the 1970s, there were very, very few storage units in the United States? But now, in 2019, there are more storage units than McDonald's, Subways, and Starbucks combined. There are far, far, far more storage units in the United States than there are post offices. Storage units are expanding globally. There are thousands and thousands of them globally, and more than half of those are in the United States. Storage units are the fastest growing segment of the commercial real estate market, and they generate $24 billion a year in revenue. Now, most of us in this room here today are not what politicians call the 1%. But I think, relatively speaking, as Americans, middle-class Americans, most of us in this room, you and me both, have a lot of stuff. So that raises this question. Does that mean that we're greedy? Well, listen, I'm I'm a pastor and a professor. And I know that this is just my experience. It might not be your experience. But what I've discovered over the last 10 or 15 years is most of us who inhabit seminary world or church world, we think that only rich people are greedy. And if you listen to a lot of the political discourse that's going on out there right now, Democrats and Republicans and everybody in between, that's kind of the thinking out there in the culture at large as well. But friends, I would like to argue with you that that really does not reflect the overall teaching of the scriptures. I mean, if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it never ever teaches that riches and wealth in and of themselves are wrong. I mean, by the standards of their own era and their own culture, Abraham and Job and David and especially Solomon were all incredibly affluent. 
and throughout church history, numerous women, numerous men who have been people of means, people of affluence, they've leveraged their resources to advance the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, at a personal level, two men that I know are two of the most godly guys I know. I love these guys. If you met these guys, you'd love them too. They're very, very, very affluent. So friends, I don't think that having money or making money or even saving money are in and of themselves wrong. But what we need to remember is that for every verse in the Bible that talks about prosperity, there are five or ten other verses that warn us time and time and time again about the dangers of greed. And rich people are not the only ones who need to pay attention to that. I mean, there's no indication in this passage in Luke 12 whatsoever that this man who interrupted Jesus, there's no indication that he was rich. But it's crystal clear from Jesus' perspective that he was really greedy. And I'd like to suggest that that means we would all be well served to do some self-evaluation, some spiritual inventory. Because greed is rooted in this silly, silly, crazy idea that if I just have more and more and more stuff in my life, my life's going to be better and better and better and I'm going to be more and more happy. And friends, that mentality which pervades certain elements of our culture, that mentality is really, really dangerous. And it's dangerous because it can blind us to the eternal things of God. It can keep us from investing in those things and living life in such a way that brings us real joy, real hope, real life. Well, nobody knew that better than Jesus. And so in order to make his point and drive it home to you and me, he does next what he always does, and he does so brilliantly. He tells a story. Let's look at the first part of this story and see what Jesus wants to tell us here. So he told them this parable. Uh, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store all my crops, all my stuff. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'm going to say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many, many, many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, we don't know the name of this rich farmer, but it's obvious from the story that Jesus tells here that he was really, really successful. And you know this, and so do I. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. It doesn't matter what your occupation is. You don't become that successful unless you work really hard, unless you're pretty visionary in your thinking. Uh, my guess is, is if this farmer had lived in our high-tech, computer-driven culture, Jesus might have described him as a software genius. Uh, the guy comes up with a brilliant idea. He gets some venture capital to start his company. He puts in a lot of long hours developing and then creatively marketing his product. Uh, before he realizes that profits are at 30% a year and they're growing, Wall Street loves this guy's firm. The stock of the company soars and then it splits 
And then it soars some more. And since things are going so, so well in the company, the guy decides to expand the business. He develops some new products, and then he targets new markets both locally and globally. I mean, within a couple of years, this guy's making so much money, he can't fill his IRAs, his 401ks, or his investment portfolio fast enough. So let's pause here for just a second and look at his priorities. In other words, let's look at what he really values. And here's the thing you and I need to remember. All of us here always reward what we value. So let's see what he rewards here. Harvest large crops. In other words, build a career. Nothing wrong with that, but build bigger barns. Expand out the business. Achieve financial security. I mean, all these finance people that I talk to or that I read, they all say, well, you better have a million dollars at least. Good luck with that, okay? Eat what I want, drink what I want. Be merry all the time. You know what? I mean, here's, here's the reality. We just need to tell the truth about this. A lot of people in our culture, and sometimes even people in church world, will look at this and they go, well, Scott, I, I'm not sure I see much wrong with this scenario. I mean, let's tell the truth. The guy's really sharp. He's working really, really hard. Things are going really, really well. And at one level, I would agree 100%. From one angle, things are going exceptionally well for this guy. Until one night... It all changed. Jesus says in verse 20, But God said to him, You fool. You fool. This very night, your life will demand, be demanded from you. Then who's going to get all the stuff that you've prepared for yourself? Well, let's take a moment and tease this out. Uh, late one evening after kissing his wife goodnight, this guy goes up to the study in the upper floor of their home. And he's excited. I mean, his adrenaline is pumping big time. He can't wait to sit down and open up the business plan for the coming year. I mean, he's really, really pumped because he realizes we have some new products coming online. And we've discovered some new markets. And we can expand the business over here and over here and over here. I mean, he's just wired. He's just going. But then all of a sudden, without any warning, he feels the sharp, sharp pain in his chest. All those years of too much stress, too much red meat, too many cigars, they've caught up with him. His arteries have hardened. The blood can't get through. His heart skips a beat, and then it skips another, and then it shuts down, and he falls face down on his desk. In the morning, his wife gets up, and she can't find him anywhere, and so she goes into the office, and there she finds him dead at his desk, and so... She calls in the authorities and they take him to the mortuary and they prepare him for burial. Uh, later on that week, they have his memorial service. And at the memorial service, lots of people say, this guy was an incredible visionary. He was really, really hardworking. 
He was very, very successful. And then they take the casket out to the graveside and they put it down in the ground and they cover it up. And then later that day, they put a gravestone over it and it lists his name and it lists the dates of his life. And it also said he was really hardworking and he was very visionary and he was really, really successful. And then everybody goes home. But Jesus says later on that night, an angel of the Lord showed up. And he wrote one word across that guy's tombstone. It's the Greek word, aphron, which means fool or stupid. Friends, listen, listen, listen. This is important. Jesus does not call this guy evil or wicked or horrible. He calls him foolish because his life was built on the silly idea that if he just had more and more and more stuff, it would all be good and he would be fulfilled and he would gain abundance. And you know what? The reality is that seemed to be working for quite a while, but then he made one big mistake. He died. Have you seen the latest statistics on death? Yeah, they're frightening. And when we die, when you die, when I die, we're going to leave all our stuff behind. Uh, some of you here at some point or another, you may have gone out to California and gone through a tour of the Hearst Castle. Well, that castle was built years and years and years ago by William Randolph Hearst, the great newspaper magnate. That castle is 72,000 square feet big. Hearst was incredibly rich, and so he stocked it with all these great works of art all these incredible statues, all these medieval tapestries. And now it's a tourist trap, and thousands and thousands and thousands of tourists go through that every year. And everybody always has the same response when they come out on the other side. Everybody does. They go, wow, he had a lot of stuff. <laughs> and we know this, you know this, and said, so why? He left it all behind. Well, Jesus tells this story to make a similar point. That's why he says here in verse 21, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, lives for themselves, consumes stuff on themselves all the time, but is not rich towards God. Christian writer and philosopher Dallas Willard once said, Jesus is the smartest guy who ever lived. And that's so, so, so true. And one of the main reasons that's true is because Jesus loves you and he loves me. And because he loves us so much with that reckless love, that never-ending love that we sang about, because he loves you and me so much, what Jesus does is he always directs us away from stuff that will hurt us and directs us towards those things that will help us 
and bless us. And so after he tells this story, that's exactly what he does. Look what he says here in these next few verses. Then Jesus said to his disciples, that's you, that's me, those who claim to follow him. Listen to what he says. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, about what you're going to eat or body, what you're going to wear. Don't worry about collecting more and more stuff all the time. For life's more than food and the body's more than clothes. Consider the ravens. Uh, they don't sow or reap, yet they have no storeroom or barn, but God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And then he goes on here. Consider the, how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon, in all his splendor, with all his affluence, with all his stuff, not even Solomon looked as good as these wildflowers do. Well, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow it's thrown into the fire or it's gone, how much more will he clothe you? You of little faith. Now, listen, listen, listen. This next verse is the key. Verse 31. But seek his kingdom. The kingdom of God. God's rule and reign in our lives. Seek his kingdom. Put God's rule and reign at the center of your life. And all of these things will be given to you as well. Let's take a second here and summarize what Jesus has just told us. He's basically arguing the Father will take care of us. He'll provide. And since he'll provide, we should center our lives in the center of his kingdom, his grace, his rule, and his reign. Now listen, listen, listen. Let's be really, really clear on this. Jesus is not against cars and clothes and computers or any of the things that you and I need and that we use on a regular basis. He's not against that. And he's not saying don't ever think about money. He's not saying don't ever go out for dinner. He's not saying don't ever buy new furniture. He's not saying don't save for retirement. Unless you're here and you're retired, you should be saving for retirement. He's not saying... Don't go on a family vacation. Melanie and I were just up in Breckenridge a week ago. We were up there for about three and a half days. It was fantastic. All for the glory of God, I might add. It was, it was great. I want to go up there again. It was fantastic. Jesus is saying, you should take your spouse on a vacation, Aaron. Okay? <laughs> and let me be really, really clear about this. Jesus is not saying, it's God first family second, job third, church fourth, dealing with your money and all your stuff down here. That's not how life is. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus isn't saying that. What Jesus is telling us is this. Life is very much like a wheel. And at the very hub or the center of the wheel is what drives you and drives me. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, put him, put the kingdom of God at the center of your life. And as you and I do that, it will influence all the different spokes. It will influence how we do marriage. It will influence how we minister and do our job. It will influence how we do our education. It will influence how we do church world and financial world and all the other parts of our lives. See, friends, as we put Jesus and the kingdom at the center of our lives, his power will flow out into all of the rest of that. 
It'll influence and help our marriages, our friendships, our employment, our education, and how we see, navigate, and manage all of our stuff. And here's the other thing, and this is really, really important. As we put Jesus at the center of our lives, over time, what will happen is we will begin, by default, by the power of his grace, by the Holy Spirit, to live out one of the key values of the kingdom of God, and that's extravagant generosity. Look what he says here in verses 32 and 33. Don't be afraid, little flock. God, I got to tell you, I just love that. We're his little flock. He loves us. He loves you and me. He loves this church. For God's been pleased to give you the kingdom. It's a gift. It's grace. Sell your, stop, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that won't wear out. A treasure in heaven that won't ever be exhausted. Where no thief can come near. No moth can ever destroy. I'm a church history nerd. I've read a lot of church history at this point in my life. And some of my favorite historians of the early church are Rodney Stark and Paul Johnson and Robert Louis Wilkin. Well, they're all great writers, and they all talk a lot about the early church, and they do it from a variety of angles. But as you read their books and you read what they're communicating, there's a common theme that comes through in terms of all their historical observations. And that is the early church was incredibly generous with their time, their energy, and their material resources. And the reason why they were so extravagantly generous is because they got a clear grip on what Jesus had done for them. He had gone to the cross and died for them to pay for their sins. And then he rose from the dead to give them the promise of eternal life. And then he gave them his Holy Spirit so that they could follow him. And so what the early church did, not perfectly, but often very, very well, was they centered their lives in the grace of his kingdom. Consequently, they began to share their resources inside and outside the church. They helped the needy. They took care of orphans and widows. They tended to the sick. And as they did that, year by year, decade by decade, over the first three centuries of the Christian era, they not only infiltrated the empire, they transformed the empire. In the middle of the 4th century, there was a Roman emperor who came to the throne by the name of Julian the Apostate. And the reason he was called the Apostate was because he had been raised in something of a Christian environment, came to hate Christianity, and wanted to revert the empire back to paganism. But Julian wasn't able to do that at all because by that point, Christianity and the church was everywhere in the empire, being extravagantly generous. They were meeting the needs of people all over the place. And so in a moment of frustration, Julian, who could be a little bit crude on occasion, said, I hate those damn Christians. They not only feed their own poor, they feed ours as well. See, the early church friends realized, it's silly, it's goofy, it's dumb to store up all this stuff. And instead, what we want to do is we want to center our lives in Jesus. And as we center our lives in Jesus and the kingdom, we're going to be like him. And that is we're going to be extravagantly, 
joyously generous to everybody we meet who's in need. See, that was God's call on them. That's God's call on you and me. So can I make some suggestions to us here today at South Fellowship? Many of you in this church, and I don't know who you are, and I don't want to know who you are. It's none of my business. But many of you in this church have, over the years at this church, you've given thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to this church. You've invested your time, your energy, and especially your pocketbook in this church. So here's my encouragement. Here's my suggestion to you. I want you to step up your giving in 2019 because this church is a church where lots of good things are going on. This church is a great place to invest your resources. You know, many of you here, you have a heart for the poor, a heart for the dispossessed, a heart for the down and outers. You're supporting kids through Compassion International or Food for the Hungry or Samaritan's Purse. You're involved in some of our benevolence ministries like our food bank. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Take some more of your resources. Uh, start to support another kid. Give more time to the food bank. Give away more of your stuff to those who are in need. Because if you do, you will find life and Jesus will bless you. Some of you here, this whole thing about stuff and the kingdom generosity. It's kind of hard. You're a little confused. You're not sure what to do with all of this because you like your stuff. Can I suggest to you, can I encourage you, sometime this week, have a conversation with Jesus. Ask him, Lord, uh, what stuff should I sell? And then sell that stuff, take that money, and give it to somebody who has some real needs and see what the Lord might do in that situation and with your life. A few years back, I went to a memorial service at a church up in Longmont. And the man who had died had been a part-time professor at Denver Seminary years and years and years ago when I was a student there. And he had always been more kind to me than I deserved. Well, he was 81 when he had died, and uh, I wanted to go up and pay my respects because he had, he had meant quite a bit to me. And, you know, when you're 81, you usually outlive a lot of your friends. And I had been in that church before, and it seated about 800 people. And I figured, you know what, there'll probably be about 200 people at this memorial service, his family and some friends in the church community. So I left early, and I got up there early. I got there 20 minutes before the memorial service started. And the parking lot was absolutely packed. I thought, what's going on here? I mean, I had to drive down two blocks and walk back to the church, and I got into the auditorium. And the auditorium was packed. In fact, I could barely shoehorn myself into a seat in the far back corner. Well, then the memorial service started, and they had a couple of family members give some brief eulogies, and the pastor got up, and he gave his homily. And then they did something at this memorial service that I don't like. They did the open mic. And I don't like that because I've sat through some memorial services where that went way off the rails. But this one was fantastic. There was a nine-year-old boy who got up 
And he said, we always liked it when Mr. B taught Sunday school. Because he would come in and he would bring us donuts and teach us about Jesus. There was the elderly widow, probably in her late 80s, and she got up and she said, well, Dick and Loretta used to come by regularly and visit, and they would bring a meal or bring a gift. And then there was this young guy who was in his early 40s, and he was a business guy, and he got up and he said, some of you here remember that 20 years ago I was the youth pastor of this church. And he said, i got to tell you something I've never told anybody before. So 20 years ago, right after I was hired as the youth pastor, I dropped all the kids off after a youth activity, and I slid the van into a tree, and I ruined the church van. And I was freaking out because I thought the senior pastor would fire me. So I didn't know what to do, so I called Dick because he was the chair of the elder board, and Dick said, don't worry about it. I'll come get you. And then he said three days later, the church van was back in the parking lot of the church, and it was all fixed. And Dick told him, don't ever tell anybody this. This is just our secret. And he said, I never told anybody until today. <laughs> and on and on it went. And I wanted to stay, but I couldn't. I had to drive back to Denver because I had a class I had to teach. But on the way back to Denver, I'm having a conversation with the Lord. And I said, Lord, I want to make an impact like that. I want to leave a legacy like that. I want to be rich like that. And you got to understand, I am not a mystic. That is not how God works with me. But on this occasion, the Lord said to me, Scott, you want to make an impact like that? You want to leave a legacy like that? You want to be rich like that? then do what Dick did. Center your life in the grace of my kingdom and be extravagantly generous. Well, can we just thank Scott? Thank you. That was a gift. You know, before we run out of here, I think it's, we want to give you some time to actually do something similar to what Scott did in the car, <laughs> leaving that, that funeral, and just give the Holy Spirit a space to speak. And it's easy to, to come in and out of Sunday weekend services and, and maybe even miss that moment to receive from God. So what I'd like to do before we head out is just lead you in a practice uh, where we invite Jesus to speak to us. Because I think maybe our heart is to be completely open and to place Jesus in the center of our lives. And, and we wanna receive that kind of real joy and life and hope like, like Scott described. But maybe, maybe the Spirit is, is revealing to us that even though we may have one hand open, we may have grasped onto something in our life strongly. And so what I'd love us to do is just to ask Jesus what that is. What are we holding on to? And give you some space to process that. And then go through a process of just releasing that to, the, to him. So Spirit of Jesus, we thank you that you're here. 
And we just ask you, what is it that we're holding on to? What's the, if only I had? in your way with your heart and yet God sometimes those things around us we hold on to because we think they're going to be security in our life we confess that we're looking to this thing or this person or this situation for security Jesus, we confess that we're looking to this for, for affirmation. Jesus, we confess that we're looking for this to help us control something in our life. And Jesus, we need your help uh, to release that. So if you would want to take your hand and as a symbol of releasing that, if you're willing um, to slowly open your hand. God, we trust that you are our security. You are the one who, who knows the deepest parts of us and affirms that. And Jesus, you are in control. welcome you into this space. God, we thank you that you don't condemn us in that, but that you continue to invite us to release these things to you and to keep putting you in the center of our lives. Jesus, give us courage to keep taking those steps this week as we leave this place. Pray in the name of Jesus and in the power of his spirit. Amen. Nothing else. Nothing else, Jesus. Nothing else do. Would you stand and just sing that with me? I just want you. Nothing else. so much for coming this morning. Just have you want to have a wonderful week. If you're new or newish, then, oh, actually, no, we don't have, I did this last service too. 
If you're new or newish, you can find out more about us at the at the uh, Rally Day booth in the, in the lobby. And what a great opportunity for you to give of your time by serving in this season. So go have a wonderful week, South. We love you.